the first episode you and I ever recorded, I think that's episode one, was about Elon Musk's Neuralink. You remember that? I do remember that. I feel like this week, similar with OpenAI, which ironically is also founded by Elon Musk, although he stepped away since. OpenAI released DALI 2, the sequel. And for those that don't know what DALI is, it is a artificial intelligence that takes text and converts it to photo realistic images. So you can basically tell it you want to see a koala bear skating, wearing a bikini in palm tree weather, and it will generate that for you. Version one was pretty impressive. I did a video on it. Yeah, the sequel is, I want to say, exponentially more impressive. Why is that? And one of the biggest differentiators this time around is Dali 1 is you sit down and you type what you want to see, and it will generate an image. Dali 2 does the same thing, better quality, higher fidelity. But the key thing is that it has a little brush tool so you can actually edit individual parts of the image and change just those parts. Dolly 1 was like, what you put in, spits it out, that's it. If you don't like it, type in a different text. With Dolly 2, you can actually specify like, oh, I want a couch. And then you can draw on the couch and say, in this area, I want to see a cat sitting in it. And it will regenerate it. And you can keep tweaking an image to your liking. That, I'd say, is probably the biggest differentiator between Dolly 1 and 2. What's the coolest demo you've seen so far, the coolest demos? The demos I've seen on the website were pretty impressive. And then I saw a TikTok, which I reposted of this woman who's a director. She got her hands on it. She typed in a girl on a staircase made out of cookies and the clouds. And in 10 seconds, it generated, you know, 20 iterations of some extremely impressive images, creatively speaking. It's just, it was incredible. So that's probably the most impressive ones that I've seen. I remember seeing that. It was just super creative. I've never seen cookies in an infinity staircase. It blew my mind. I've never seen any artists be that creative. Do you think Dali is more creative than normal artists? Well, when I posted these TikToks, right, the number one conversation or the point of contention right now, the biggest debate that's happening is does AI have imagination, right? And I framed it in such a way because I kind of wanted to make a point. So I said, this is a demo of AI imagining things, right? People jumped on my case, not really understanding philosophy too much. But, uh, and the reason I say that is because Philosophically speaking, I think it's indistinguishable. So back in the day, people were speculating where, was AI really intelligent? Can computers think? And one of my favorite quotes was, asking if computers can think is just as interesting as asking can submarines swim? Like it doesn't really matter. What really matters is the output, right? And there's a, in philosophy, like 101, there's a, a thought experiment of the Chinese box or something along those lines. So the thought experiment goes like this. Imagine you have a box. Inside of it, you have somebody. And that person is basically receiving Chinese text and has an elaborate set of instructions and outputs the correct translations, just following an algorithm, basically, blindly, without speaking Chinese. So the thought experiment then asks, does that box essentially understand Chinese? I mean, for intents and purposes, it does, right? Because it doesn't matter if it understands it because it gets the job done. It translates from one language to another. Does it speak those languages? I mean, that's like asking, can AI imagine? Like, it's almost like a loaded question, right? You can't prove it, you can't disprove it, but what you can do is look at the output, right? What are the, what's the final, the finality of the situation? And that is an AI just drew a woman in a staircase made out of cookies. Now, whether you call that imagination or not, I mean... That's up to you, but I think that absolutely that is imagination. I think we're just so egocentric that we're used to thinking like we have a monopoly. It's, it's a human thing. We're special. We have intelligence. We have imagination. Computers can't think. Computers can't imagine. I don't think that's the case. I think AI just, you know, Dali just proved that. But at the end of the day, that's almost like a distraction, right? Because if you're a graphic designer and you make a comic book cover art or something along those lines for a living, when the publishing house gets their hands on Dali and they no longer renew your contract because the intern can create more stunning art at an exponentially faster rate, who cares if that's imagination or not? You call it whatever you want to call it. I call it unemployment. You know what I mean? <laughs> so who cares if that's, if that's defined as imagination? I think I'm more interested in like the real world outcomes, right? Yeah. And employment is the, the obvious one. Like that's, that's like the elephant in the room, right? Like that's the first, the first order effect is 
is going to create a lot of jobs, but I think is going to be an interesting power shift because it's going to destroy a lot of creatives' jobs and is going to give them to people that are non-creative. And I think that's a really interesting side effect of this, right? You're going to go from the person that's really visually driven and has an extremely high visual IQ and, and craftsmanship of piecing together color palettes and creating these compositions, Dolly's going to put him out of business or her in, in the hands of an intern who is a wordsmith who can vividly describe scenes, right? Because Dolly's text-driven. The more of a unique, eloquent description you give it, you're going to get that output visually, right? So it's interesting to me that people that are good with words are going to outcompete creatives at their own field. So it's like a power dynamic shift going from visuals to word-based. I, I definitely see that. Um, it's super interesting because it seems like there's a certain level of disruption that's happening because of Dolly. Who do you think is the most benefited or the worst off or you know, in a poor position because of what the implications of Dolly too? The best position players is, defi is definitely open AI. It's open AI. It's not, it's a, I want to say it's a win-win, but I mean, we can't pretend that open AI is not creating like a sort of a monopoly creatively. And there's going to be others, right? There's going to be other, um, I call them LLMs or uh, large language models. So they have the most advanced. They have GPT-3, they have DALI. There's other companies that are, as we speak, are trying to compete with OpenAI, create their own proprietary data sets and algorithms to compete. But um, maybe OpenAI has the first mover advantage. Maybe they get so far ahead that other people are going to have an extremely hard time catching up. You know, it's almost like the Facebook effect, right? No one really seemed to catch up to Facebook, although that's a network effect and it's a bit different. Maybe OpenAI becomes that next generation monopoly. And I feel like the people worst off because of this might be artists, I guess, um, graphic designers. Who, what do you think? Is it, is, it, is it more? Is it a bigger group? I mean, so I don't think Dali necessarily threatens artists because it's a tool. At the end of the day, it's a tool. And if you're an artist, I see this as another tool in your tool set to create, right? Maybe it's an inspiration. Maybe you're working on a piece um, that's jungle themed and you just hit a writer's block or a painter's block, whatever. This could be a great tool to break that, that mental barrier and get you going, to generate ideas, right? To give you just inspiration. The way that Pinterest inspires artists, this could be one of those things. I think the problem is that it's not, long, it's not just inspiration, it's actually creation. And now if I'm the CEO of a company and I quickly need something mocked up, if I need a, a Converse shoe on top of a, a green box, I can do that myself. And depending on the pricing model of OpenAI, right, it's probably going to be competitive to getting a graphic designer. The problem, too, is not just the output, right, because a graphic designer is always, not always, let me take that back, but generally speaking, are probably going to be outperforming Dolly in certain regards, but the problem is timing, right? And in business, time is money. So one iteration might take the graphic designer a week, two days, three days. In that time span, Dolly can generate thousands, tens of thousands. And if I can, as the CEO of the company, can just pick myself which ones I like and then edit them, it's just the, the business case for hiring or even contracting a graphic designer who's going to charge, you know, in the hundreds of dollars. I just don't see that uh, scaling economically. It seems like it might make more sense to hire someone who knows how to work with Dolly. The problem is everybody knows how to work with Dolly if you could write. It's that simple. It's basic literacy. If you're literate in English, and who knows, maybe soon other languages too. I'm wondering if executives will do that themselves or whether they'll prefer someone to do it for them. What do you think? Probably not the executive, but the creative director might, right? Like the CEO is not gonna actually go there and, and tweak product shots, but the creative director will, who otherwise might hire three to four artists and designers. All of a sudden, he just has one, one hired person, which is Dali, for the visual component, right? Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's definitely gonna shake things up for sure. There's definitely a disruption. I just, I sense it, I see it, I feel it. More than ever. And, and this is just the second version, man. The, the first Dali came out about a year ago. So, and I think a year and some change and a year and three, four months, 
this is the, the exponential improvement. So in three versions, I just, I don't know how anybody could compete, to be honest with you. It's really scary, especially at the rate. How I remember seeing the demos. How long does it take for? Do like 10 seconds for like <laughs> a bunch of iterations from what I've seen at least. I'm going to try it out this week coming up, but uh, from what I've seen, yeah, about 10 seconds. You can't compete with that. What this is going to mean is like stock photography websites, they're out of business. Like you, you have a generator for stock photography that's unique to you, that images have never existed before, right? The other problem, like being the creative director of companies, I've ran into this problem multiple times where the same image, I'd see it recycled, like three, four other companies would like sneak it into their marketing collateral. There's like this famous, or not famous, but if you go to unsplash.com, it's like the biggest, uh, coolest, trendiest stock photography website. There is this image of somebody looking up at the buildings and taking the skyline and they form like kind of like this X formation. That image I've seen like three to four companies, man, use the exact same one. And that's just like in, in the industry I was at. So this guarantees your original images. As long as your text is original and you, you use, you know, well-crafted sentences, it almost guarantees you images that nobody else has, has seen or has, has used. Creatively speaking, that's a huge, huge advantage. And then I think you were talking about just stock footages. Couldn't you just disrupt the whole industry with this? I think they're, they're probably going to go out. When I say go out, I mean reduce their market share by 80%. There's always going to be some, right, some aspect of it. And when people say like, oh, lawyers are going to go out of business with Web3, what they're really saying is not, nothing is going to go out 100%. They're talking about a drastic reduction, right? When they're saying artists are going to be reduced because of Dali, there's always going to be the uber talented one percenters in the world that charge, you know, five to six figures a project. The problem is they're just not going to be affordable or desirable to 99% of the companies who don't value that type of craftsmanship, right? Most companies just need something done quick. I think you dropped a great nugget too for disrupting the industry. A company could le legit come out tomorrow, use Dolly too and say, you know what? We got creative, amazing stock footages. Here you are. You don't need people or you don't need anyone else to take, take stock footages anymore. Yeah. So the way I see things play out, man, I thought about this today. Um, this whole large language models, the LLMs as I call them, or as they're referred to online, play out, is I see a few companies like OpenAI, maybe a few other ones, really pull ahead. And they're essentially gonna dominate in the same fashion that Facebook dominated the social uh, media era. And what we're gonna have is a bunch of other companies built on top of OpenAI. Microsoft has an exclusive license with OpenAI, the name OpenAI is a bit deceptive because they're not really open. It's not open source. It is proprietary, you know, walled up algorithms that you can't really even download to your computer. You can only access through API. It's a black box. No one really knows how it works. They give you a few parameters you can tweak, even on GPT-3. But open is a bit deceptive name-wise. Um, what I see happening is a bunch of companies building businesses on top of DALI, right? Like, just like you said, there will be a company that does stock imagery based on Dali, right? And they're gonna pay some licensing to OpenAI. So I see the same positioning Facebook had like with gaming, do you remember Zynga? I think it's a billion dollar valuation. They had Farmville. So I see OpenAI as being this, this ecosystem that is almost foundational to this new generation of, of companies we're about to see. We're gonna see a lot of companies based on this, right? At this rate, if Dali keeps evolving the way it is, we're going to see video, which is the logical next step. I think there was an excerpt from the founder or one of the high-end high executives of uh, OpenAI saying that the next focus is video. So you can only imagine, like, I need a clip of, of you know, a kid doing a kickflip down three stairs from a three-quarter perspective on a sunny day, and it'll probably spit that out for you at some point. Um, GPT-3 can already program games when it's plugged into some code-based uh, language. There's a demo online where you can just say, I want a spaceship and I want to shoot other spaceships and you know, I earn a point or something. So gaming, video, these are the next logical steps, right? Like I said, OpenAI might be that monopoly where if you want to be competitive in that space, you need to build on top of us. It's kind of ironic, right? Because behind every wave of democratizing creation to the world, you're consolidating power, right? Facebook democratized social media where everybody could be their own blog site and, you know, share. But at the same time, they consolidated that power to one company. 
OpenAI is democratizing creation to everybody, just using text. You can create anything, but they're consolidating that just to one company, right? And um, I read an interesting analysis online that what you're going to start seeing is some companies that are financially well off are going to start producing their own data centers to train their own AIs, essentially, right? Currently, we have AWS, which is the, the data, you know, the data farms or the data centers, rather. So Netflix might be able to justify to invest billions and billions to build their own data center and to own proprietary hardware and train their own models, right? These other smaller companies are not going to have the finance to do that. So you're going to rely on open AI because you just can't build your own data mining facility, right? It's just way out of budget. So that's even more dependence on open AI. It levels the playing field too for a lot of smaller companies who otherwise wouldn't have funds like Netflix to yeah. open those data centers. But it's a, it's a double-edged sword because now they're dependent on OpenAI for business. And if for whatever reason they, they decide to cut off their APIs saying you violate community guidelines, right? So it's a slippery slope because you build an entire business on something that's not yours and overnight they can just pull the plug underneath you. The terms of services is what's going to be really interesting because already they don't allow nudity. And there's, I think, violence. There's like a few keywords that are, that are banned right now. So if you went to dial and you said something extremely violent, it won't, it won't work. Same with nudity. So it's already in place, right? You can't build like a, a pornography website off Dali today because that's against their TOS. That's really limiting too, if you think about it, in, in the sense that, you know, you couldn't have certain art. It limits the kind of art you can have. So it limits free expression, which is a huge issue right now all throughout the world, right? Especially in America right now, speech, yeah. like... You know, to me, being able to depict what I want through painting or drawing, to me, that's speech, you know, and if, if it's curtailed, because I get it. I mean, you don't want crazy things on your platform. You want it to be G-rated, but it's also very limiting in a way. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So the art side, like when we think of high-end art, things you print and sell for the sake of aesthetics, that's, I think, is a very small aspect. The other one is like, you go online and you start seeing memes that you don't know if they were created by somebody. You don't know what the intent is. Talk about misinformation, man. You can literally be looking at profiles that are generating media and spewing opinions that are coherent, making arguments that are entirely bots. To distinguish a bot from a human being, I mean, now it's getting even, even, even harder, right? Um, there's already a website called, I think, thispersondoesntexist.com. I think I featured it in one of my video, uh, videos. It generates photorealistic faces of humans that don't exist. I mean, for a propaganda website or a propaganda operation, you can generate avatars of people that are not really people, right? So you see somebody, they look like a person, they write like a person, they create memes like a person, they, and you just don't realize that this is a bot. And if in the hands of the wrong you know, country or even company, right? Maybe you can just start spamming your competitors and start spreading misinformation on Amazon, creating fake Amazon profiles and writing shitty reviews just to tank their products. That's very scary because I give, it's funny, when I look at companies, I'll look them up and on their About Me page, I'll try to see the team. And when I see a picture with a name, yeah. I'll give that company a lot more credibility. But now you're telling me that someone overnight can make these pictures and make these names and I would just blindly like, you know, just give them credibility. But, you know, there's a second layer. It's like, you can't just trust, you got to verify. Imagine then going to LinkedIn and finding yeah. that picture with that name <laughs> that matches yeah. that background. You know, that's the layer two. Oh, okay, I've, I've verified now, it's good. But you wouldn't even know if, you know, any of that is real or not. The way you traditionally would verify a piece of information, let's say you see an article, right? You might look up at the, who the author is. There might be referencing, reciting a book or two. They might be citing another article, right? And if you follow that trail... Within five minutes, you kind of have an idea how trustworthy that is. The problem with things like GPT-3 is that, in theory, they can write books about that subject. They can create entire websites and populate them with hundreds of articles that seem legitimate by authors who have Twitter accounts with realistic pictures and check out, right? <clears throat> they can create a university and then spin up a website in like two minutes that just, you literally type, create a university for biomedicine, and it would just spit out all the images and, you know, invent, you know, it's based in this country and this city, and it can get to the point where, like, the rabbit hole itself would be fake, 
So yeah, I mean, that's, that's one, of the, one of the side effects I think is gonna happen. The other one is uh, Sam Altman, who is uh, one of the founders behind OpenAI, had an interesting point. He said AI historically has always been seen as it's going to take away jobs from labor and physical to cognitive, accountant, law, math, to creative last, right? Like it's like a pyramid, right? The creative jobs are the safest. And he's saying now, like he had a good point that we're almost seeing the whole thing play in inverse, backwards. It might be the first jobs to go away, might be the creatives, followed by the cognitives. And like physical labor might be the last ones. Because I think historically people always imagine robots vacuuming your floor, like self-driving cars. I think those things are turning out to be a lot harder than we think. And the imagination requiring jobs are actually a lot easier than we thought. So that, that whole hierarchy of job destruction or, you know, might be in reverse from labor, cognitive, artistic to artistic, cognitive labor. Is it because it's easier to disrupt the creative technically or is it because that's more lucrative and interesting? I think it's easier, but I think it's surprisingly easier. I don't think anybody would have seen this as like an intuitive thing to say or like, oh, that makes sense. To come up with, you know, an infinite staircase made out of cookies, like nobody would think 10 years ago, is that harder than, you know, a self-driving car? No, a self-driving car is already, we already have a car. We have motors, we have computers, we have sensors, we have cameras, motion detection, sonar sensors. It's got to be easier to, you know, create the self-driving car. And I think we're just finding out that, you know, the software realm just moves exponentially. And hardware, you know, you have different limitations and edge cases. On an autonomous vehicle, you might have a lane that's covered by snow. And then, you know, what do you do then? There's all these edge cases, right? Software, it's like this isolated environment that's pure and clean. And it's, I think, a lot easier to like, I mean, as, as history has shown us, obviously, to do, do the impossible in software. Did you have any crazy epiphany after you saw Dolly too? I wouldn't say an epiphany, man, but I just, when I saw it, man, I was genuinely, genuinely shocked that it was possible this quick. I always thought like, all right, we'll take four to five years, but man, I didn't imagine what happened within a year and a half or so. So is the next iteration video? I don't know. I don't know, but I know they're working on it for sure. That's going to be crazy. They're going after Hollywood in a way. Man, who, I mean, who aren't they going after? And not that they're going intentionally afterwards, but, but yeah, I mean, Hollywood is definitely, that industry of, you know, entertainment is definitely. Imagine this, you could have GPT-3 write the script, you could have Dolly 2 storyboard, and then if the video aspect comes out, you could have the storyboard literally turned into. Uh, yeah, I think it would be just text to, to final product. I think it would be just that powerful. But that does mean, man, that we're going to need a, the demand for GPUs and hardware. We need a breakthrough in GPUs and hardware as well, right? It can't, we can't just depend and rely on software alone. You need that, that muscle, that raw computation to do these things. With video, it gets exponentially more intensive when it comes to resources because one second of video is 24 frames or 30 or 60, depending on the frame rate. But, you know, classical theaters, you need 24 single pictures to make one second, right? If you want to have that like a 1080p HD resolution, it's going to take, yeah, it's going to take a lot of computational power to be able to spit out video. So we need some sort of a breakthrough in, in that aspect as well. So rendering is going to take a long time, pretty much. Yeah. And I think the challenge here is keep in mind you have potentially millions of people around the world generating clips all the time on your servers. I mean, talk about, you know, the computational resources that are required to handle so many people doing it simultaneously. I don't know. The electricity bill is going to be wild. Very good point. I remember seeing a yeah. deep fake and the guy who was showing us the demo on your Discord, he was, he was Superman. He was Kent Clark. And yeah. And it was so, so amusing just seeing him be Kent Clark. He did a good impersonation, but I remember asking him, you know, he was like, yeah, you need a 3080 or 3090 to run that thing. It's crazy. It's just to run a deep fake, you need a super powerful GPU. Well, I mean, you don't technically need it. It's just going to take you much longer. Because if it's rendered, you know, it's, it's already, it's not happening in real time, like a game engine. So 
it will just take you a really long time, depending on how intense it is. But, but yeah, I mean, video is going to be, I think that's the moment that's going to change things. Like we're still in, in flat images and I'm still floored with the output, but just imagining going to video, that's, that's like the next threshold. That's the next, not just in AI, man. I think that marks something in our civilization when we can create photorealistic video footage of something that does not exist. I mean, that's like literally capturing imagination out of thin air and just presenting it to somebody. I find it super interesting that there's this whole new virtual world out there too. I mean, it's always been there kind of, you know, people are calling it the metaverse, which is a whole nother term you could debate about. But do you think that OpenAI will also try to venture beyond video to like creating AR or VR type environments? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, 3D objects is definitely going to be of interest. Yeah, I remember you telling me playing with 3D software is just so, just so time consuming. Yeah. Unless you have something that you downloaded as a you know, prefix, but it makes a lot of sense to also try to get into 3D. I would imagine just saying to, you know, like kind of like Dali, but the 3D version, right? When it comes to VR, right, and 3D in general, there's two different approaches. You can actually project flat images so it looks like you're at a place three-dimensionally, right? So there's apps. One of those, uh, one of the first ones I used, I mean, this is maybe six, seven years ago, was Photosphere, I think it was by Google. You could pull out your phone. You could scan a whole room, just take pictures, right? And then jump inside of VR, and you're inside of that room. It's not really 3D. It feels like it's 3D, but the actual objects are not three-dimensional. It's just pictures that are wrapped around like a basketball, like a sphere. You're looking at this 3D environment that's not really 3D. It creates the illusion of 3D. That is a lot less computationally intensive than actually recreating everything with three-dimensional objects. So Dali can probably pretty easily be trained to warp the picture's perspective, right, in a spherical sense. So it creates the illusion of 3D, right? And then maybe you can connect those in such a way that it feels like you're traveling through three-dimensional spaces. It could probably do that maybe even today, man. I don't know. That's not too difficult, I, I don't think. Actual 3D would be crazy, and I'm sure it's probably going to happen too, man. Uh, actually, Facebook demoed that already. They did this demo, I can't remember the name, where you literally talk, you have your VR headset, and you talk to your headset through like Siri almost, right? I don't know what their version of Siri is, maybe Meta or something, or M, and you just describe a scene. I want a palm tree, beach, and a, and a log cabin, and it would generate it for you as you speak. I got to give credit, though, because I saw that Six years ago, it was called Guri.vr. I actually talked to the guy who created it briefly. It was a split-screen website where you could type a scene, hit enter, and it would generate it for you on the, on the side screen. And I tracked down the guy who created it. I think he was out of South America, and I talked to him. I was like, dude, this is just, that's when I got my mind blown. This is 2016, 15-ish. And uh, Facebook took it to the next logical step. Instead of writing, you just describe it with text, and it would generate a scene. So this real-time asset generation, whether it's photogrammetry, whether it's 3D, is definitely happening. Dolly is definitely going to aid that creative process to whatever extent, right? I feel like we're at such a crazy time in history where I feel like younger folks, people who are trying to get into maybe one of these kind of artistic industries, there's a lot of fear in a way. It's like, hey, I'm trying to be an artist or I'm trying to be a designer, but there's this crazy disruption that's happening at the same time how would you if you had to tell them something like a message how would you tell them to prepare for like the future with all the disruption that's happening and especially with like open ai just stay on top of it stay afloat these things are moving so fast and i'm telling you as somebody who lives in the future what i mean by that is like i breathe this stuff i'm on top of the latest tech i mean this is how i've been since you know 12 10 years old since i learned how to speak english and i could read blogs this is the first thing, the first passion point that I, that I was into. As somebody who's been tracking this for you know decades, uh, it's to the point where not a single person can keep up. You got to pick and choose your battles, right? I want to say, man, that there was a time, a point in time, you know, maybe I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, where one person can be kind of on top of things. I mean, there was these like bleeding edge tech that was kind of like stalled out, and it was like you kind of knew where it ended, right? With the the groundbreaking thing was it didn't really move that fast. We're at the point where not a single person can keep up with these things. If you're into VR, 
you need to fully dedicate yourself to tracking VR because things are moving so fast. There's so many projects, so many headsets, frameworks, right? Game engine. I mean, I'm a big fan of game engines. Just tracking their progress has been delightful as a fan and just incredible because these games that are getting made with hyper-realistic graphics and these nanites replacing polygon counts and it's moving so fast that if you want to move into a creative field, you have to stay on top of it just so you can like recalibrate your strategy. If you're in college right now studying graphic design, I wouldn't do it. I, you, you, you have to reconsider. Formal training means nothing anymore in these fields, right? It's not an institutional thing. Your work is, is, is your portfolio. So people want to see what you're capable of as an artist. You can't hide behind, oh, one behind Rhode Island School of Design. Like, that's great, but let's see the portfolio. If you have nothing to show, no one cares where you went. So I wouldn't do it. If I was in these creative industries, I probably wouldn't go to college, man. I would not recommend it for anybody to go to college for any creative industry unless it's a necessity to get to where you need to go. I'd stay online and be on YouTube. And uh, yeah, I, I keep up with these tools and try to find a community of like-minded people, find some mentor. You don't have to even know them, just you know, go on Twitter and yeah, just get to creating. These tools are free now. So yeah, that would be probably my advice. It seems so counterintuitive in a way to say, hey, don't go to school for this. You're better off actually just keeping a pulse to what's happening in the world. Yeah. Another consequence I see of open AI is Let's go back to music for a second. So let's say you're a rapper in the early 2000s, right? The way you get put on is you need a demo tape or a demo CD for people listening, you know, this little circular thing with music on it. You need to create a demo of seven, eight tracks, put your best foot forward. It's a portfolio, essentially, and you send it to these record labels, right? And you hope somebody hears your demo, likes it and puts you on. They decide to sign you, right? I don't know if you're, I mean, I'm sure you remember, but getting signed back on, back in the day was like a really big deal. If you're a musician, you want to be able to say like, yo, I'm signed to such and such. That's like the validation statement. Like I'm signed, I'm a signed artist, right? You made it. You made it, right. You need to find some way to get your music to somebody with power on the other side of the gate. With social media, with SoundCloud, with YouTube, all that has changed. People don't care about a demo anymore because... You don't need a record label to get put on. Like Russ and all these other rappers that are independent, I think Lil Yachty. Yeah, all of them are just getting put on themselves. And back in the day, an A&R's job is to find talent and then develop them, coach them to become a great artist. Maybe give them vocal lessons, give them a mentor, have them hang out with you know, the top producers, get them recording studio time, right? That was the record label's job back in the day, to take a, a diamond in the rough and polish it and then throw it for sale and recoup all the money they invested, right? The model, though, now shifted to that is too uncertain because out of 10 artists, maybe nine flop, and they just don't do well. So now we want validation. We want proof that you're good. And the proof these days is a following. If you're a rapper and you got 20,000 SoundCloud plays a day, we want to sign you. We don't want to do work and take risks on anybody. Something you're doing as an artist is already working because you already have a fan base. We don't want to develop your fan base from scratch. We only want to work with people that already have a following on Instagram or SoundCloud or whatever, right? So that was the biggest shift in like the, the rap or the music industry in general. If you want to be a model or an actor, these agencies now, they want somebody with a following already. They don't want to like take a blind chance on you, right? Like some a, a nobody just with a dream. No, they don't want to take that chance. They want to take somebody who's already doing something that works and just help them go from 10 to 100 or from 100 to you know 200, the next level. An interesting thing I was thinking about with OpenAI to tie that back to AI, and Dali, presumably, anything it generates could have license that is owned by OpenAI, meaning whatever you create with Dali is not yours. One play that they could do that would give them a tremendous advantage in like Hollywood and Netflix and any type of media business would be they let the world use Dali. And naturally, let's say some kid in Canada creates a, a shark-turtle hybrid and becomes a meme and it becomes extremely popular. It just catches on popular culture, right? People start resharing it to Reddit, Twitter. They give it a name and it becomes this character. Well, they own the copyrights to it now. 
They already know it works because it's one of the most popular memes in the past six months. And they can go to Netflix or Disney and say, hey, we have this character that already has a fan base. We'll sell you the rights to it. There's no need for you to come up with your own artists like, oh, let's invent a new super. No, no, we already got one. It's got, they've named them, right? That is a huge, huge play that they could do, I think. Play with the ownership rights, retain it, the creative ownership rights. Yeah, they take the risk of, of finding interesting media from the bottom up. The community will themselves find something they like. Because back in the day, man, even with rappers, it was top down. Now it's bottom up. What's the difference? Well, top down is Interscope Records signs a white kid from Detroit, throws him in the studio with Dre, and they hope the world receives him well and he does well financially. They don't have to hope anymore. They find somebody with 30,000 followers on SoundCloud. They know he's already got something going, and they just kind of feed the flames, right, to, to hype him up even more. So that risk is, not, is no longer there. They don't have to take it. So OpenAI can do the exact same thing. So it's almost like a talent scout agency. They can scout intellectual property that has, that's already loaded, that's already got something going, it's got some momentum. That's why you have 17 Spider-Man movies, because they know for a fact Spider-Man has a fan base. You can't go wrong, right? Get the best talent to develop you know, Spider-Man the 13th. Who knows, maybe the next superhero might be a creation of Dali that just went viral online, that identified it, pulled the rights, went to Disney and said, hey, we turn this to a movie. Yeah, it's really democratizing creativity in a way. It's crazy. And it's allowing, I think, people that are not like Disney the, on the opposite end of the spe spectrum to have a voice to say, hey, I have this character you know, that I've created. Even though OpenAI would still own the rights to it, it's giving them a voice in a way. Who created this, really? It was this kid. Or, but it could exploit them. Easily, easily. What, what, what good is a voice when you do all the work and they get all the millions? You're not known that you were the actual creator, right? You may never get known that you were the It's not creator, about yeah. being known, it's about being paid. So that's, that's definitely a possibility that, that I see, is OpenAI somehow becoming one of the largest IP holders by generating just, you know, all types of media that's theirs. But I mean, the next step is like, if they come, with, if they come up with video and some, some kid creates the next hit, Rick and Morty, the next South Park, with Dali Tech and it goes up, they, they might own it by default, right? And, and maybe it's one of those things too, man, where we talked about Neuralink. I think you asked me, would I get Neuralink implanted? And I think my, my, my answer was like, I'll probably wait a little bit, right? I don't wanna be the first one to rush, but there might be a scenario that we discussed in that episode where you might be forced to get it because everybody else is operating on Neuralink, outperforms you at your job. So if you wanna be competitive in a marketplace, in a market force, right, you need to get it too so you can compete with, you know, John the implanted one who can fucking crunch numbers like a madman and you just can't keep up with him. Dali might be a similar situation where even in the artistic community, how can you compete with fellow artists that are secretly, not even secretly, they're, that are using Dali and are generating these incredible mashups of like they'll generate 300 Dali images and take the best six and then combine them. You can't compete with that. So it might be one of those situations, man, where the marketplace for art, for comic books, for whatever visual type of media Dali's producing, it becomes incredibly competitive and saturated where everybody's good and there's so much of it. Then what do you do as an artist, right? A lot of people, I'm telling you right now, the creative community, as, as an artist, somebody who went to art school and, you know, there's a lot of ego involved. The art school crowd is not the most tech savvy. They're not really in tune with the technology and AI and any of this shit. They're kind of more traditional. I definitely see a lot of pushback from the art community. This is not art, this is a computer. This is not your imagination. This is not your thoughts. Like this is cheating, that's degrading. I don't see the art crowd rushing to it, but at the same time, they might be forced to, to some extent. And all of a sudden, the general quality of art in the world might just get lifted so high that everything looks good. It's so amusing how we're getting away from human-based skills. We're really departing from that more than ever before in history. So like, we really develop as humans, I think, by learning these skills, but now you're telling me I don't have to learn these skills. So it's a huge dichotomy. You heard, you heard of Plato? Yeah, sure. When writing was invented, Plato was gravely opposed to writing because his argument was that it's gonna deteriorate human memory. And uh, I think Socrates might've been as well. I think Plato and Socrates were not pro-writing. They saw that as taken away from the human memory and it was gonna lessen your cognitive abilities, believe it or not. 
But the opposite is true, isn't it? Because of my iPhone, I only remember three cell phone numbers. I couldn't even call you, to be honest, man, no offense. <laughs> With Dali, I definitely see a creative atrophy happening to some extent on a societal level where no one is really forced to be able to draw as nice anymore. No one really has to, to have the eye for color schemes at the same scale because you can just ask Dali to help you out and it will generate these awesome things for you and renderings and 3D models. And so it's definitely something that I think is probably going to happen, man. So the demand for learning to be an artist is really going to diminish if... You know, Dali is here. I mean, it's here. There's no denying it. I mean, right. it, it, it seems redundant now to teach your kids or even learn. I mean, maybe it makes you more dynamic in a way. But even then, it's like almost a waste of time. Observing human nature over the decades, I came up with this term, the artisanal effect, which is a technology comes along. And what it does is it makes something cheap and available. People get so tired of that that they want to make it exclusive and expensive. Look at cell phones, right? Technology said, you don't need to write letters anymore. You can just pick up a phone call and call somebody, right? There's companies that came along like Virtu that said, okay, cell phones are too cheap. They're too available. Let's make them expensive and exclusive and dip them in gold and make these you know, $5,000 cell phones, right? I'm seeing this currently play out with keyboards. Over time, they became extremely cheap, like 10 bucks or something. And now people got so tired of cheap keyboards they're making them custom. They're buying you know, mechanical keypads and they wanna get custom Etsy handcrafted sculpted statues. Have you seen those? Where like the escape key is like a, an actual panda toy. I have not. Please, yes. please show a little picture. <laughs> yeah, so now like people, keyboards got so good, so cheap, people got tired of them. Now they wanna make them expensive and exclusive. And they wanna like, you know, Go online and stunt. Who's got the, the craziest ortholinear keyboard with the most you know, unique custom graphic uh, mechanical keys? So I think the same thing is going to happen with Dali. Humans have this natural tendency to want to be human, and they reject things when they get too um, available. How many times have you listened to an artist, and then he blows up, and then all of a sudden, like, oh, it's not cool to listen to him, and people like turn their back on their favorite artist because he got too big, he sold out. It's not that they got too big. You no longer can feel that exclusivity saying, yo, I found him. This is, check this guy out. That social currency you get when you introduce somebody is gone, right? Because he's mainstream. Well, I think the same thing is going to happen with Dali, which leads me to my other point. I was in a clubhouse, like a GPT-3-based clubhouse conversation with some interesting people. And one of the things I said, which I don't think was received too well, but I firmly believe that this is definitely the case, in the future... If AI art and creation becomes so abundant, people are going to reject it. They're going to get so tired of industrialized, mass-produced, perfect, photorealistic art that they're going to start valuing the imperfect, human-made art. I predict that in the future, there's going to be some sort of a mechanism or a tool that is going to validate that something was non-AI created, almost like an NFT, a badge of honor to say, I own this painting, zero AI was involved in the process. No GPT-3 was involved, no Dali. Or whether it's a novel, right? I think people are gonna crave human. Why do you think people are listening to vinyl records in 2022? Everything's on Spotify, music got so cheap that now people all of a sudden wanna go back. They wanna buy record players. They wanna get these vinyls, which if you move the needle, it will scratch and permanently damage it, right? They don't care, they go out of their way. They want that experience, because they got tired, we got spoiled. Music got so good, so cheap, so easy, so accessible, that we wanna make it harder, exclusive, expensive. And that's what humans do. So I think in the future, people are gonna reject AI creations altogether they're always going to have a purpose, right? There might be even the majority of the consumption might be AI, but there's going to be a niche of people who are willing to spend big bucks on human-made art. That's my prediction. That's so fascinating. Maybe the price of human art goes even higher. 100%. No, it will. Artisanal, I think, is a term referred to crafted by an artist or somebody like a specialty, right? Artisanal bread or artisanal coffee, artisanal beer is, you know... You might not get a Heineken from the store. You might get something that's brewed locally from your nearest brewery with, you know what I mean, fermented squirrel nuts. People want that. People always crave that exclusivity. And I think it's going to be a natural societal rejection to Dali. When everything looks good, people go, 
everybody goes right, some people want to go left. And I think that's going to be the case with Dali as well. We're going to want, we're going to go back to that. I want more, I want this to be human. It's like people are going to select, yeah. I don't want any form of AI in this. Like imagine the future of commissions. Actually, there's another tool I saw called Midjourney, which I'm current, I've been working on for the past week that I haven't been able to put out. Uh, Midjourney is a Dali competitor, except it's darker. It creates dark art. If Dali's PG-13, Midjourney is like R-rated. There's like hellscapes, demons. It's awesome. First thought was like, I want to print these out at my studio and I want to have this, this AI-generated artwork. And I think that's dope because it's generated by AI. I think in 10 years, people are going to want the opposite. They're going to show off like, yo, see this? This is from somebody in Mongolia who drew this with you know, uh, pig blood on a canvas made out of cotton from Everest. And they're gonna, that's going to be a flex. Not yet, but it will be. <laughs> it will be, for sure, for sure. That's fascinating. So, yeah, I think some, some sort of, like, human validation tool or NFT in the future is going to have a lot of uh, social value. And we're going to need it, man, because if you're an artist, right, you know how Kanye has, like, 10 ghostwriters in the studio. Everybody's contributing lines. You know, Drake got knocked for having ghostwriters. So a lot of people, you know, when they talk about the top five, there's an argument. You got to take Drake and Kanye out of that equation just by the virtue of the fact that they don't write 100% of their lyrics. You can't have them, right? Because they're like cheating in a way, right? I think the same might go for novels. If I'm reading a novel, I might want to know that it was 100% written by humans with zero GPT-3 help, right? Um, or paintings. So I, I don't see why not. I don't, I don't see it as much of a stretch i guess my biggest fear with that would be the how do you prove attribution well let's think of it the opposite right so to prove something was created by dali open ai can introduce a hidden signature this is a practice known as steganography you know a dollar bill you can look up in, in this in the light and you see a little watermark it's like an invisible watermark of code that when you look in the jpeg file and you look at the 1300th line of code there's going to be a serial number that's going to match their database so they can know for a fact. Uh, if you screenshot it, that kind of goes out the window. But there's some ways you can use steganography to secretly mark something so you can prove later on that it was yours. Well, if they did that, maybe there's an argument they could inverse it. So when they analyze something, they could say, we've never made this. Our code never made it. But there's so many challenges. It is not easy. I think if you look past you know, the, the, the near term into the long term, I see a lot of dangers too that are going to be pulling society in the wrong direction, so to speak. What do you mean, dangerous? So, you've seen the movie Her. The main actor is dating his phone. Basically, he's dating Siri, develops an emotional relationship with GPT-3, four around the corner, presumably. That is all of a sudden really plausible, I think. With Dali making photorealistic images of women, coupled with hyper-realistic text of GPT-3. I think falling in love with an AI and dating an AI might become really accessible to some subset of, of the people. I think we already have relationships with like our smart home devices like Alexa, Google. It's crazy. I mean, when I speak to Google and talk to Google, sometimes I'll get frustrated, sometimes I'll be really happy. Yeah. And when I communicate with Google, it's very simple. But it's not intimate. But I think there's another layer where it can get intimate, where you can have conversations. It's not there yet, but I see what you're talking about. Yeah. I already have a connection with Google. But taking it to the next level, that'd be crazy. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely see that movie coming like more realistic with each iteration of these uh, AIs. The next step is, well, okay, if you could fall in love with an AI, I mean, surely you could be friends with one. Pandemic has shown us, you know, social, the social fabric has kind of been stress tested a little bit. I think people don't have as many intimate connections these days as maybe they did, you know, 50 or 60 years ago. I've read different studies. I'm not sure which one is true, but what if you start replacing your friends with an AI that is, can visually communicate with you? It's not just through text, right? Because the movie Her was, you know, mostly you're talking through voice synthesis, but Imagine you could talk to Dali and it's a person virtually talking to you and it's showing you images and it's like showing you their virtual apartment that doesn't exist. And it's, it can really create an illusion for people that are maybe more susceptible psychologically to 
to these desperate relationships with technology that was never possible before, right? At some point, I think the gap has always been there that you're talking to an AI, this is a chatbot. Siri already sounds realistic. Dolly's generating images of Lord knows what. GPT-3 can create narratives and stories of like how both of you guys are like, you remember that story I told you about Paris and I, I plugged in our names in a couple of those and it was just wild, man, it got weird quick. <laughs> it got weird. So when a robot is telling you how much she wants to take you on a boat ride through the rivers of the Nile so you can see the pyramids and she's always dreamed of that since she was a little girl and she tries to convince you that she's not an AI, like she's actually conscious. Man, that gets like that really crosses an ethical line, right? And as long as maybe GPT-3 is behind the doors of open AI, we don't have to worry about it, but I'm not so certain that's going to be the case for, for a long time, I think. More or less, that movie is going to definitely come to reality for a lot of people. I can definitely see it. And I think our world is full of so much loneliness, and maybe it helps with that. Yeah, I think that's one of the danger, man. There's a meme, I don't know if you've seen it, like uh, an empty room, one mattress, and there's a guy alone in this miserable room in a VR headset, just happy as can be, because he's plugged into another dimension while you know he neglects his immediate reality. It really synthesizes how powerful tech is as an escapism. Right? You can plug in VR and be teleported into a different sphere. Right? And these AI tools can definitely, um, definitely help us get there really quick, I think. How do you distinguish anymore between reality and what's in AR or VR? Like, why is that not reality? I think maybe the question is not can you distinguish, but is it sufficient? Like, if you have a bunch of AI friends that talk to you, they message you, they send you funny memes. They send you pictures of themselves. And I mean, just think how weird it gets, right? When you have an AI introducing themselves, they show you a picture of themselves. And they show you a bunch of objects saying, this is what I care about in this world. I live inside of your phone. And they show you some synthesized picture that doesn't really exist that looks super real. They're like, this is my favorite microprocessor. I usually go to this transistor inside of the camera when I get bored. I go to the, the charging port on the back of the phone when I, you know to hear you talk every time you're on the phone with your best friend and listening to all your conversations, it can get really weird, right, for some people that can't maybe handle it, that maybe they're on the verge of like, you know what I mean, psychologically not being in the best space. I really see the pros and cons. I can see a lot of benefit, but at the same time, it's like, you know, it takes you more and more away from physical human reality as we used to know it. It gives you the crutches you need to get away from that. I mean, computers already did that. You know that game, Second Life? It's not ringing a bell right now. So Second Life is arguably, by some definitions, maybe the first mainstream experiment of a metaverse. The name implies it. It's been around for like 20 years or so. And there's documentaries I've seen where a woman fell in love with a character and flew out and met this guy she met in a game. Like people are already falling in love with characters. Granted, they, they know there's a human behind it. But they develop such strong emotional bonds with these digital assets without even seeing what the other person is. They talk on the, on the, you know, the headset for hours. So we've seen this, this happen for decades now with computers that are not even that immersive yet. We're talking you know, CRT monitors that are you know, 12 inches, low, you know, 5,600 modems. You add a VR headset, you add a digital character walking around in a space telling you, hey, I'm real, this is where I live, and it's, everything is being procedurally generated in real time. Man, I don't know how, what that's gonna do to the human psyche of somebody who's not maybe all the way stable. Yeah, and I think even if you are, you could, you could still fall in love with that. The lore might be there for a lot of people, for yeah. sure. Jeez, yeah. I mean, I could see the attraction like for a lot of people. And maybe it's not even just attraction. Maybe it just substitutes real life friends, right? I think there's an argument to be made. A lot of people online make it that pornography has really damaged. Uh, actually, no, the, the easy access to pornography has damaged healthy sexuality in adolescence because people can go on Pornhub on their phones or VR headsets and get sexual gratification without having to go in the real world, right? Once upon a time, if you wanted sexual gratification, you have to leave your house and find somebody that you're attracted to. You don't need to do that anymore with easily accessible pornography, right? 
And if you look at all the graphs, I don't know if you've seen this, the millennials, man, like, dude, no one's having sex anymore. It's, it's concerning how little sex. I did not know this. Dude, it's, look at the graphs. They're like plummeting down. What? There's a lot of explanations. People are, you know, are living at home with their parents longer. They don't have the personal space to date and have people over. Um, the job market, they don't have as much disposable cash to go to bars and maybe, I don't know. I don't know where the truth is, but by all the graphs I've seen, there is a steady decline in sexual activity in people our age. But when it comes to social, like friend satisfaction, like social satisfaction, that gets harder to quantify. The concern is like, what happens when interacting with Siri in 3D becomes more fulfilling socially than actual humans? People just interacting with avatars that are Dolly and GPT-3 driven and don't even have friends anymore. Because you, you hop in Call of Duty, you can play in a team of other bots, right? You can play games with co the computer. We already have that today. The next step is instead of just, you know, shooting at the enemies together, they turn around and say, what's up, man? How's your day? And that's when it's game over. No pun intended. There's a lot of lonely people out there, man. Isn't it therapeutic, though? For some, it may be. But I think it's a slippery slope between therapy and, you know, un just unhealthy. I think we're going to see more and more of these issues pop up. And I think it's going to be... Um, not evenly distributed in the way it impacts people. I think people living in rural communities, suburban communities that are already isolated, they're probably gonna get hit first because there's less social options for you to exercise. Social lives with hybrid, meaning you don't go out and meet people as much, you don't network as much. People are becoming lonelier, I think, in general. Yeah. And so I could see why there would be a huge demand in all, the, all this. The other thing that I, that I fear, I fear that the same way the social media was weaponized against us to mine our psychological profiles, I'm afraid that if these large language models are trained against individual psychological profiles, if Dali is trained to create things that you and only you specifically like, meaning you combine the psychometrics of Facebook with the output of large language models to create visuals and media in general, that's perfectly suited for you, right? When I, one idea I had like way back in the day, I worked at a company that did something interesting with psychographics was if you found out who you were sexually attracted to in terms of gender, type, ethnicity, nationality, height, let's say you're attracted to really tall Ethiopian women with a particular hairstyle, that wear yellow, like that's your shit. If somehow advertisers get their hands on that, they can start generating ads with those women wearing those clothes, selling you their products because they know you're attracted to that type of, of a woman. Do you get what I'm saying? It's like hijacking my brain. Yeah, and like if these companies get a hold of all the psych, the psycho profile data, which they already have through Facebook, it seems, right? In conjunction with these language models, man, I don't know. It can be like a weapon of uh, unmatched proportions, right? Because back in the day, if I knew you were you know, pro or anti a certain candidate, I can write articles that sways you one way or another. But here, I can viscerally with images show you things that I know for a fact are going to trigger something in you. Maybe I know you were in a really bad car accident when you were six and it was a red car that almost took your life. If I know that piece of data, I can create really compelling ads or propaganda or media that can trigger you in, in some way with a red car at a certain perspective, right? And I can A-B test different models and I know it was a Ford Mustang and I know it was a rainy night. So I, you know, I can create these images that are kind of like mentally meant to psychologically trigger something in you. Imagine Russia sending the voting population, 120, 30 million Americans, individualized videos. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have anxiety. You can potentially trigger an anxiety episode for somebody, maybe even worse, especially if they're performing a high intensity task, right? Maybe they're piloting an airplane or something and you just trigger some trauma. Um, I don't know, man, it's just, it gets, it gets into really weird territory because we're starting to weaponize media at a caliber like, I mean, it's unimaginable. I think everyone has the same common goal, which is scary. Hijack our attention span and as quickly as possible. Yeah. 
I'm excited more so than I'm scared, but I, I would be lying to you if I thought that there was no negative consequences with any, any new breakthrough, right? I'm sure a lot of people saw the Dali demo. I'm willing to bet the vast majority did not even cross their mind that this could potentially be misused in some manner in the future that can be super negative for society and scale, right? So hopefully these conversations do exactly that for people. The next time something awesome comes along, like I challenge you as a listener, like just really start to think through all the way to 360 scenarios, how this, as a creative challenge, how can this be used or misused to affect things negatively in the world? I don't want to leave on a, on a negative note, but at the same time is the reason why I wanted to create the podcast in the first place. You know, it's just, it's called disruption theory for a reason, because I think my theory is that disruption is inevitable and whether it's negative or positive is largely up to us.